But let's jump in right here, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 2. Uh, verses, well, actually, 1 through 7 this morning as we look at this first church, the church at Ephesus. You know, we come to this section dealing with the church, and it's interesting because the book of Revelation, as we saw in chapter 1, we're reminded of again this morning in chapter 2, the book of Revelation begins with Christ walking amongst the seven golden lampstands and those lampstands representing the church. So it begins with Christ walking amongst the church. And guess how Revelation ends? It ends with Christ at the center of his gathered and completed people in glory. Meaning the focus of all world history between those two points is Christ and the church. There is nothing more significant occurring in the world today than Christ calling out his people and building his church. See, Revelation, it helps us to kind of refocus our perspective of of world history. That world history is simply the backdrop against which Christ is working out the salvation of his people. This is so important, especially today. With all the other junk that's going on in our world today, remember this. Never forget this. Christ is building his church. Not a denomination. He's building his church. Church and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. He will gather his people. And so, you know, one day when all that the Father has given to him has come to him, and when he has gathered all of his elect, then the curtain of world history will come down. That's when it'll end. So take courage today. This has been so encouraging to me just to read through Revelation again and again over this past month to be reminded. That Christ is building his church. And so as we come to chapters 2 through 3, if you've ever heard any preaching in Revelation, more than likely you've heard preaching on these seven letters to these uh, seven churches. And really they are spiritual report cards for these churches. And when I was in school, I hated report cards. I never liked report cards. And can you imagine having your report card read out loud in front of the rest of the class and the teacher giving commentary about your grades? Well, essentially what's happening here is these churches are receiving these letters and they're, they're here and they're meant to be circulated. So your church is hearing what Christ said to all the other churches. Your kind of uh, dirty laundry is being aired out in front of everybody else. So here Christ writes these letters to these churches and they are incredibly practical. They're practical not just for those churches, but they're practical for us. No other section of scripture gives us a better picture of what the church should look like than these two chapters. Right here we get a class on ecclesiology, the study of the church from Christ himself. We're going to find out, we're going to take one letter one church each week over the next seven weeks, and we're going to find out what Christ likes and what he doesn't like in his church. And we need to remember that while these letters are written to churches, they're practical for our individual lives. At the end of every one of these letters, Christ will say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let he who has an ear individually And so just because these letters are churches doesn't mean you can hide behind that fact and say, well, it doesn't apply to me because it's written to a church. No, no. No, these are intended to be practical not only for the church corporately, but for the church individually. And I, I really think kind of the context in which they're intended to be studied is for us to think of it this way. What if Christ wrote you a letter? 
What if Christ wrote you a letter? What, what would he commend you for in your life, and what would he critique you for? And then the question for us corporately is, what if Christ wrote Lenexa Baptist to church? In what areas would he commend us, and, and in what areas would he critique us? So these are practical. But, but finally, let me say this as well. These letters are also prophetic. I believe that these churches represent the seven ages of church history. They're prophetic, in other words, of what is to come. Uh, For me, there's just too many correlations between each of these individual churches and the various ages of church history for me to chalk it up to coincidence. Why in a book of prophecy would Christ include seven letters to seven churches if it were not also to tell us what is to come? Now, just know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this except to say, I believe that we are in the age of the church of Laodicea, the seventh church. And there's not an eighth church, folks. Meaning we're in the anchor leg leading up to the rapture of the church and the beginning of what Scripture refers to as the tribulation period. We're in a place of urgency. But don't misunderstand me. These are real churches that Christ is writing to. And each of these letters was specifically applicable to those churches. Meaning it made sense to the context of that particular church. But these letters also contain timeless principles that are applicable to our church and to each of our individual lives. The first church we come to is the church of Ephesus, the classic first century church. Let's read it together, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us by means of the power of your Holy Spirit. And you would take the principles of this text and this letter that was written to this ancient first century church. And God, you would make it alive and fresh to us and applicable to our lives. Teach us more about who you are and who we're intended to be. Convict us of sin. Draw us to yourself. I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you today, your love would overwhelm them. You'd see the beauty of Christ, and they would run to him and know his salvation. They would know today that what you really want is not a group of followers who simply adhere to doctrines and rules and teachings, but you desire a people who love you. And enter into a relationship with you through faith in Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me give you some historical background very briefly on Ephesus. Ephesus, the church there, was one of the most favored New Testament churches. Founded by uh, Aquila and Priscilla, recorded in Acts 18. Paul spent two to three years there ministering, preaching, and teaching. He appointed Timothy, who ministered there. The apostle John ministered there. Apollos, the great preacher, preached there. This was a privileged church. I mean, imagine sitting under the preaching of Paul. Imagine sitting under the preaching of Timothy and hearing Apollos and John. This is a well-taught church. 
It was an established church, probably somewhere between 35 and 40 years old. So this is not some new church plant. This is an established church with believers who had been walking with the Lord for a good, good bit of time. Their context culturally, the city, Ephesus itself, was a pagan, extremely pagan culture. This context for these new believers in this established church was a context that surrounded them with idols and, and pagan worship to pagan gods. And so what does Christ write to them? Well, look in verse 1 again. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. It says, to the angel. Now, we talked about this in chapter 1. Each letter is addressed to the angel of that church. Angelos is often translated messenger. There are those who believe that this is speaking to an angel that's given authority over that church. I disagree with that interpretation because angels are never given authority over the church. And here the angel, the messenger, is called upon to repent with the rest of the church and we don't see that given a command given to angels. I believe that these messengers, these are the pastors, elders, who are responsible for the teaching, the leadership, and the governance of the church. And that is what pastors are intended to be. They're intended to be messengers like angels. They do not think for themselves. Angels don't tell you their opinion. They only tell you what God has said. That is what a pastor is intended to be. They only communicate the message of God, the word of God. Meaning anytime you go to church, you should expect a man of God to stand in the pulpit and declare only the word of God. Only the Holy Scriptures. And so Christ is described here as one who is holding these stars. That word holds, it demonstrates his power. It means to take hold of forcibly. It's a demonstration of his power. It's a demonstration of his authority. So these pastors, elders, in his right hand, they're held by Christ. And there's a picture here that I don't think you can miss. That the only real authority in the church is Christ. That he's sovereign over the church. He's sovereign over its leadership. You know, I, I have learned in my years of ministry that most of the time the source of any conflict in the church is a conflict of authority. It's always about who's in control. Is the pastor in control? Are the deacons in control? Is the congregation in control? Do you know what this passage reminds us right here? There's only one person who should be in control. There's only one person who should be in charge, and that's Christ. And Christ does delegate authority, but we only have authority in as much as we abide underneath the authority of Christ. It's, it's like generals in the military. You know, generals in the military, they have a lot of authority as long as they abide under the authority of the directives of the president. But when a general decides he's going to do whatever he wants to do, he loses authority. A good, good example of this was President Truman with General MacArthur. General MacArthur, President Truman, there's going to be a ceasefire. We're not going to North Korea. General MacArthur said, well, we'll just see about that. We're going to go in. We're going to invade North Korea. You remember what President Truman said? He said, I might just be a haberdasher from Missouri, but I'm still the president of the United States, and you, sir, are fired. And he fired America's most popular general because you can't have authority if you don't abide under authority. And the same goes for leaders in the church. Listen to me. Leadership in the church is accountable to Christ, and they only have authority in as much as they abide under the authority of Jesus, meaning that any time a pastor elder decides they're going to do whatever they want to do and live however they want to live, they disqualify themselves and they lose their credibility and authority in the church. 
The picture here is that they're accountable. And folks, this is very real to me. This is, this is a truth and a fact that I recognize often is that I'll be held accountable in a way that you will not. And so these messengers, they're accountable to Christ. And Christ is in control. He's the authority. But he's also described as walking amongst the seven golden lampstand. So we see not only his authority and his control, but we also see Christ's care and compassion. The picture here is of, of the resurrected Christ ceaselessly walking amongst his people, engaged in constant care for his people. That we are a people of his presence. This ought to be one of the most supreme realities of the church. That the living Christ is with us. That he's among us. That he's the unseen guest at every table and every meeting. He's the silent listener of every conversation. He's the answer to every prayer. He is the object of our worship. He is the living, living, resurrected Christ. And he's right here with us. But it's my prayer that every person that enters into the doors of Lenexa Baptist Church realizes and senses that we are simply a people abiding under the authority of Christ and we are abiding in the presence of Christ. He's with us. He's right here. What a powerful picture of Christ's control and his care. And then he says in verse 2, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves to be apostles and they're not. And you found them to be false and you've perseverance and endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So Christ identifies himself. He's described, there's a description from chapter 1 and then he, then he commends the church and he says, I know, I know your deeds. Christ knows everything. Nothing escapes his notice. And that's especially true in everything. But, or is it true in everything? But it's especially true within the church. I know your deeds. I know everything. And, and listen, just hearing those words is a bit distressing, isn't it? It ought to be especially distressing to anybody who would want to practice evil or immorality or wickedness within the church. This ought to shake you. To anyone who would seek to do harm to Christ's body. And even if you have done it and you think you got away with it because nobody saw you or is aware, know this today, it did not escape the notice of Christ. He sees everything. But to the one, the one who's walking in obedience, the one who's walking in faithfulness, the all-seeing eyes of Christ that are described as blazing flames of fire in chapter 1, that's a very comforting thought if you're walking in obedience and faithfulness. That even though nobody else might see your labor or your prayers or your work or your effort, you know Christ sees. Nothing escapes his notice. And as servants of Christ, we live for the approval of Christ alone. Listen to me this morning. You do not have to be seen by people to be faithful to God. You don't have to be seen by men to be faithful to God. And you certainly don't have to plast it all over social media for it to count. As it appears some people believe is the case. It should be, listen to me, it should be enough that Christ knows. He sees. And his approval is the only one that matters. And then he commends them in, in three areas. He commends them first for their hard work. 
He praises their work ethic, meaning that Ephesus was not a lazy church. This is not a group of spectators. They were workers, and he commends them. The Bible has a lot of warnings for the sluggards. And it praises those who work hard. He commends them here. Spurgeon has a great quote. He said a lot of Christians, I didn't write it down, so I'm kind of paraphrasing, but he said a lot of Christians don't like to work. And he says that their kind of work, a lifetime of their kind of work, wouldn't exhaust a butterfly. But he said those who truly know Christ labor for him with all their might. Church family, let us not be sluggards and let us not be spectators as there is light shining and it's day. Let's work hard for the Lord. So they were hard workers. Then he commends them for their perseverance. This word perseverance, it implies endurance under extreme hardship. This was a church that faced all kinds of trials and difficulty related to their cultural context. They were persecuted and yet they, they remained faithful. This is the true mark of spirituality that you endure to the end. See, everybody looks good at the starting line. Everybody looks good at the beginning of the game. But it's those who finish well that are commended. It's perseverance and endurance that's the mark. And this was a church that wasn't a flash in the pan. They didn't just rise up for a brief period of time. They've been faithful. They've endured and Christ commends them. And then finally, Christ commends their discernment. It's clear here that they don't tolerate the behavior of wicked and immoral men. They were intolerant. And I know that's not politically correct, but listen to me. Jesus is intolerant. It says in verse 6, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jesus is intolerant of wicked and evil behavior, and so should we be. So what you have here apparently is a church that's being pressured to tolerate the wicked and evil and immoral behavior of others. And they said, not in here. Does that sound familiar? A cultural context that's saying you need to be more tolerant of this behavior. And the church at Ephesus said, no. We will not tolerate that behavior. That's the biblical church that Christ commends. And they were discerning towards certain deeds, but they were also discerning towards certain doctrines. They tested what they were taught. That just because somebody claimed to be an apostle, they tested them. They're not going to let their church be, be formed or directed by false teachers and immoral behavior. They were seeking to be pure in deed and in doctrine. In other words, this was a church that understood very clearly that you don't get to choose your moral behavior. This is so important for us to remember. You don't get to choose your moral behavior. There's a lot of people today, well, I, this is, I just feel like doing that, 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 living that way. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what God has said. And in a similar way, you don't get to choose your doctrine. Because it's coming commonplace for people today to say, well, I, you know, I feel this way about God. It doesn't matter what you feel. It matters what God has said. So we don't choose our behaviors and our morals. We don't choose our doctrines. We get our doctrine and we get our behavior from God's word. That, that was this church. That's how they were. And you look at this and you say, wow, what a church. I mean, that, that's the kind of church we, we would want. I hope we would want to be. 
And they're hitting it on all cylinders. They're engaged in the work and the mission. They're not backing down despite their cultural context. They're not a flash in the pan. They're enduring. They're seeking purity and doctrine indeed. But there was one concern. And it was no small thing. Look in verse 4. It says, but I have this against you that you've left your first love. So this is a church that had remained strong in so many areas, but they had faded in the area that mattered most, and that was their love for Christ. They were orthodox in their belief and their behaviors, but they had lost a heart of love towards Christ. And folks, this is so scary because it's so subtle. They had all the marks of a great church. Externally, if you looked at this church, they checked every box of a healthy church. We would have looked at it and said, wow. We would have said, listen, they're preaching. I mean, that Paul can preach. Timothy preached the paint off the walls. And these guys, they're doctrinally true. Look at the church. They built a beautiful place. And they're enduring. In our assessment, we would have given them an A+. But the only assessment that really matters is the assessment of Christ. And guess what he sees? He sees what nobody else can see. He sees the heart. And Jesus says, I love your orthodoxy, love your hard work, but at the end of it all, you're just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It's all meaningless without a heart of love and devotion towards Christ. Psalm 51 says, when David in Psalm 51 says, the Lord does not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. He's not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In other words, we see this time and time again, especially as Christ confronted the Pharisees. More than our work, Christ wants our hearts. It was the real issue with Simon Peter. You remember Simon Peter who denies Christ the presence of a little girl? And you look at that situation and you're tempted to think the real issue with Peter is that he didn't have any courage. But that wasn't the real issue. You say, how do you know that wasn't the real issue? Because when Jesus restores Peter, he doesn't come to Peter and say, Peter, do you have the courage to follow me? Do you know what he says? He says, Peter, do you really love me? The great struggle that every believer faces is that Further, the further and further we get removed from the point of salvation, the more we begin to substitute other things that look really good, but we substitute them for what Christ really wants, and that's our heart. Now, I, I still remember the first time I saw the Rocky Mountains, 21 years old, driving to work out on a ranch in Colorado. I still remember the moment I'm listening to Rich Mullins and a song called Home, and I see those mountains in front of me, and tears filled my eyes. At the end of that summer, guess what? They were just a set of mountains. I remember being in college and Christ getting a hold of my heart in a new and fresh way. Well, I couldn't get enough of his word. I was in his word. I, boy, I was in his word all the time. It was fresh. It was new. I was memorizing scripture. It was relevant. It was just so good. And I can remember other times when Jesus was just another part of my life. And studying his word and preparing a sermon was just another part of my job. Listen, we all struggle with this. You know, I, I don't really struggle with the inerrancy of scripture. To be honest with you, I don't really struggle with right and wrong. You know what I struggle with? Losing my first love. It happens in marriages, doesn't it? Externally, everything looks really good. You say, well, there's nothing wrong with that couple. They seem like they're doing great. 
but something died. They're just like, you know, every time I think of that, I think of uh, Forrest Gump, Forrest and Bubba Gump, you know. He says, you just lean against me and I'll lean against you. They're just two soldiers trying to make it through another night. And if you're not careful in your marriage, that's what it'll become, won't it? Just two people, two soldiers trying to make it through another day. Folks, if it can happen in our marriages, it can certainly happen in our relationship with Christ. So what do we do? Three R's. Let me give you three R's Christ gives us here of loving Jesus. Number one, he tells us in verse 5, remember from where you have fallen. Jesus is, I believe, calling upon us to remember the moment when we discover the grace of God in Christ. Remember the moment of your salvation. Remember the moment when you realize the depth of your own sin when you realized all that Christ had accomplished for you on the cross, that moment when there was a clear recognition that all you were was a sinner and Christ was your only hope of salvation. You see, again, I think that the more and more we move on from the moment of salvation and the more we do for the Lord, if we're not careful, we start to think we're something. And instead of being blessed to have Christ, we start to think that Christ is blessed to have us. And folks, the key to maintaining a love relationship with Christ is never forgetting the gospel that saved you. Never forgetting the love of God that reached down in Christ and saved a wretched sinner like you and me. Yeah, I think it was really one of the keys of David's life and his devotion to Christ is he never got over the fact that he was simply a sinner saved by grace. In fact, if you read, I was reminded of 2 Samuel 23, at the end of David's life, it's kind of like David's swan song. It's not his last words, but he's gathering his family in, and there's a lot there. Uh, But I love the one thing that David really tells his family that he wants to be remembered by. He says, this is how I want you to remember me, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David said, he looking at his family and he says, just remember this, I was a worshiper. I loved God. David was a great warrior, but that wasn't how he wanted to be remembered. He was a great judge, but that was not how he wanted to be remembered. He just wanted his family to know that I'm just a man who owes it all to God and I love him. Never got over the grace of God. Can I just ask you this morning, do you really love Jesus? Are you going through the motions? Has your time in the word become nothing more than checking the box? Has going to church become a chore? Has giving become painful? Is prayer an afterthought? Are you doing good things? And everything looks all right externally, but there's no real heart of love behind it all. Christ says, remember. Remember the love that has saved you. Remember who you are. Remember what you deserved and what Christ has done for you. Go back. You know, if you know Christ today, you have a moment that you can go back to. When Christ called you to an expression of love that was new and fresh, go back and remember and be refreshed and let go of everything that's come between you and Christ. Remember. And then he says, repent. And in this word, you sense the urgency, but you also sense the severity of this situation. That a a cold heart towards Christ is a sin. Let that sink in for a moment. A cold heart towards Christ is a sin that demands repentance. 
And, and the reason I want to stop here for just a moment is because I believe we're not careful. We just kind of diminish the severity of this. We think, well, listen, all, I'm, listen I'm going to church. I'm, I'm, I'm reading my Bible every now and then. You know, I'm doing some good stuff. And surely that cancels out my cold heart. And you know what Christ says? No, it does not. In fact, what Christ is saying here is that your cold heart cancels out all your good deeds. You know, if there's one thing, you sh- if you're here this morning, you do not know Jesus Christ. There's a clear picture here. Christ doesn't want a bunch of robots. He's not looking for a people who, now Christianity, the misnomer about Christianity is just a bunch of people following rules and doctrines. And yes, we follow rules and doctrines. But Christianity is about a group of people who've been saved by the blood of Jesus and we love him above else. And he loves having a relationship with us. And repentance leads us, leads us to doing the deeds we did at first. So the third R is redo. One of the most identifiable marks of a new believer is that they can't get enough of God's word. I love this about new believers. In fact, I have seen new believers in Jesus Christ. They had, you, you walk up to them and they got their Bible and they're clinging to it as if somebody just might steal it from them. You know what I mean? They just love the word of God. And, and almost every time you encounter a new believer in Jesus Christ and you ask them, oh, tell me about your walk with Christ And almost every occasion, they will tell you about something that they've recently been reading in the Word of God. And you know what I've learned? It's not even so much about the Word of God as much as it is hearing the voice of Christ in His Word. It's about spending time with this one who is God and the creator of the universe and loves them and speaks to them in their personal devotional time. And they just want to spend time with Jesus. And what Christ is calling us to do, go back to those moments. Go back to when reading my word wasn't drudgery, when it was not just a priority, it was a joy. When you couldn't get enough. And I'm just here to tell you, if it's been a long time, if you know Christ, you've had moments when you were reading the word of God and the words jumped off on the page and it was as if Christ was speaking to you and there's nothing like it. Those moments will bring you to tears. And I'm just telling you this morning, if it's been a long time since you've had one of those moments, you get alone with God and you beg him to speak to you. Man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. If you are a Christian, you can't live without hearing God's voice. You long to have a relationship with him. Redo. And then there's a warning very briefly. Verse 5. Repent or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place. It's not that they lose their salvation. But he's saying if you don't get this right, you lose the, the power of my presence in your life. Now corporately this means that the, the building might be there and the, the people still might be going to church. But there's no power and presence of Christ in that place. We've probably all been to those churches at some point or another. It's my prayer that Lenexa Baptist never just becomes that church where we're all showing up, but there's no power of the presence of Christ among us. It's just dry, cold, dead orthodoxy. That's the fear. And in our own individual life, we, you know, you can go through the, the motions of Christianity, but you know when you're not experiencing the power of Christ's presence in your life. And it feels like the plug has been pulled and your prayers aren't leaving the room. That's the danger. 
I'll remove my lampstand. And then there's an encouragement in verse 7. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to you the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, we've just stated this in Genesis, but no one had eaten of the tree of life in the garden since Adam and Eve had been banned from that garden. Until on the night of his passion, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, conquered sin, Satan, and death in his death and resurrection. And he opened the way back to the tree of life so that all who trust in Jesus Christ can eat of his grace and live forever. This, he says, to him who overcomes. He's basically saying the one who overcomes, that's the true believer. This this is the way that you identify the true believer. As John would later say in his first letter, whoever or whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Meaning the true believer, the true believer in Jesus Christ, they may have some ups and downs in their walk with Christ, but they will struggle to the end of their life. That Christianity will not be something they used to do. Like every good marriage, they will always fight to kindle the flame and overcome. See, Christ didn't ask us to be successful. Just ask Stephen. As I was reading again in Acts, Stephen was not successful in the world's eyes. You know what Stephen was? He was faithful to the end. That's the overcomer. It's the one who endures. It's the one who finishes well. It's the one who dies well. Always fighting to kindle that love relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you are here this morning watching online. You've never had a first love. Maybe you've never had that first love with Christ because you've never contemplated the depth of your own sin. You've not, never thought about your, your own sin and how you have sinned against a holy God. Maybe you've never thought about the fact that your sin deserves judgment and hell. That's what all of us deserve apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never contemplated your sin. Maybe you've never contemplated the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Maybe you've never thought about the fact that Christ died on that cross not for his sins but yours. He came on a rescue mission to save you. And because he's God and because he's perfect, he's the only one qualified to die for your sins. And through his death and resurrection, he's provided a way back to God to eat of that tree of life and know his salvation. Maybe you've never even thought about that. Maybe you've never thought about the free gift of salvation that's offered to you today through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ is that today, apart from no act of your own, apart from believing in Jesus Christ, your sins can be forgiven. You can be washed clean, the slate new, reborn, set down a new path, a path that leads to life, and enter into a relationship with God who made you, loved you, and created you. Maybe you've never thought about that but I hope you would today. And I would encourage you to fall in love with Jesus. I don't know what obstacles are holding you back from Christ, but I would encourage you, read the Gospels, consider Christ. You can't help but fall in love with him.
Some of you are here this morning and you have fallen in love with Christ and you have tasted of his salvation through faith. And you can't imagine a day ever coming where you would really lose your passion for Christ. And I want to say to you, keep going. But I also want to encourage you, be intentional. You know, I get to do some premarital counseling. You talk to these couples and you tell them, now at some point you're going to have to be intentional about putting the phones down and having a conversation and cultivating a love relationship. And they look at you like you got three heads. Because they in love. But they got to know that love is a commitment, not a feeling. In Jesus Christ, our relationship's not based on our feelings. It's based upon our commitment. And there'll probably come points in times when you have to be intentional about going back and remembering what Christ has done for you and recultivating that love relationship with him. And then finally, some of you are here this morning and you, you've lost your first love. Nobody would know it because you're doing all the right things. That's the danger of this church. Boy, you look good. Looks healthy. You're checking all the boxes. But you know inside you've got a cold, hard heart towards Christ. And I think Christ would say to you today the same thing he said to Peter when he restored him. Do you really love me? And maybe, just maybe, you need to get on your knees today and through your own tears say to him, just as Peter said to Christ, Lord Jesus, you know everything. You know my heart. You know how I've become cold in my relationship to you. Bring me back and help me to love you. Bring me back to a place where I loved you most of all and best of all. Bring me back. we have a hymn? Oh, we got a hymn. Kept running through my mind over this past month. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I loved thee. My Jesus, tis thou. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, it's now. I love thee in life and I'll love thee in death and praise thee as long as thou lendest me breath and say when the death dew lies cold on my brow. If ever I loved you. My Jesus, it's now in mansions of glory and endless delight. I'll ever adore thee in heaven so bright. I'll sing with a glittering crown on my brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, it's now. Father, we thank you for the love that you have demonstrated towards us in Christ. That just as John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son. I pray if there's one who has never considered Christ, 
I pray today they would see the depth of their own sin. They'd see the beauty of the love that Christ demonstrated as he died on the cross for their sins. And I pray that your love would so overwhelm them that they couldn't help today but lay aside their sins, repent and turn in faith and trust in you. And I pray that they would find a relationship that gives them peace and joy and can fill their life like nothing else. Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you. Maybe we've known you for a long, long time. And like this established church, over this length of time, we've grown cold in our heart towards you. We're going through the motions of Christianity. We're doing all the things that would indicate a healthy Christian life, but deep down we've lost that first love. We've grown cold in our affection towards you. Lord, I pray that we would remember. I pray that we would remember today from where we have fallen. I pray that we would remember the gospel that saved us. I pray that we would repent. I pray that we'd go back and do the deeds we did at first. God, rekindle our hearts. Bring us back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.